Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, we're continuing our harmony of the Gospels. And on this occasion, Mark and Luke are so very similar to Matthew. Matthew includes some extra stuff that we're just going to look at Matthew here primarily today. Matthew chapter 24. I'd like for us to read verses 32 through 41 together. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that He is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask your added blessings upon the reading and study of your word today. Help us to understand it aright. May we respond appropriately. We thank you for the instruction that Jesus has given, not only to his disciples living then, but to his disciples living now. Thank you for the ongoing admonition that your word provides us. Please provide us with the patience and stick-to-itiveness and faith that is required to respond appropriately to you. Well, certainly among the very worst words that a teacher who loves the subject that he teaches can hear from a student is, am I going to need this? Am I going to need this? Do I need to know this? The reason the question is so very irksome is because it typically arises from a mentality of, I'm going to tune out whatever you're saying unless it's going to show up specifically on a testing device. If you aren't going to test me on this, then I'd rather disengage a little bit further than I already am. Now, in my classes, I provide a syllabus that gives a rough estimation as to when tests will happen throughout the semester. However, I reserve the right at any time to give the dreaded pop quiz, right? Why? Well, because some students believe that they can just put off all of learning until right before the test. They cram, they pass, and then they forget. And that cycle continues on and on and on it goes. They put off learning until right before the test. They cram in everything again. And ultimately, this is cancerous to true learning. If that's all that you do is cram, pass, and forget, then you haven't really learned at all. So to combat that habit, an unannounced evaluation at unannounced times can be very helpful. While preparation for a test given to the school can sometimes be put off until the last moment, students can still, some students at least, can still pass in such situations. This is certainly not always the case. And an education that's worth its salt prepares you for more than just taking 
tests within a classroom. A class that's worth something prepares you for life. Much of life doesn't work this way. An army cannot wait until the enemy is invading to begin training troops. Doesn't work. A city that's situated below sea level can't wait until the hurricane is upon them to then, uh uh-oh, we got to do something. We've seen what happens when we fail to be ready. But most importantly, you must not put off thoughts of eternity until the last moment. For at least two reasons I would cite. We can probably cite more, but at least two. First of all, you may not have opportunity to make another decision. Life as you know it could be over in a moment. You could suffer from a heart attack or brain aneurysm or something other like that, and it could be all over before you even had a moment to think about it. So, life could be over in a moment. If you put off for that moment right before you die, you might not have the moment right before you die to think about these matters. The second reason that I would offer to those who say, well, I'll put off a decision regarding Jesus until later on, maybe until the end of my life, after I've lived life the way that I want to. The, The problem with such a mentality is living a life of hardened disbelief and rebellion against the Lord affects your heart. You will not be the same person 30 years down the line as you are now if you live 30 years of your life in hardened rebellion against the Lord. You won't be the same. 30 years of resisting the gospel, you won't be the same. There are no assurances regarding the end of your life anyway. So, stop putting off what needs to be done today at this very moment. Your relationship with God is not something you can afford to put off. You can afford to put off a diet plan. You can afford to put off dental work, at least for a little while. You can afford to put off some of these things, but you cannot afford to put off a decision regarding Jesus. We get so wrapped up in decisions that affect the next couple of years of our life, and yet we neglect the decision that will affect our eternity. How absurd is that? How ridiculous is that? So among the antidotes to such a mentality are Jesus' words here in Olivet Discourse. We spent a few weeks already in this text, and we come to a point in which Jesus is wrapping things together. He's wrapping them up. He's described the conditions that his disciples and their contemporaries are going to experience in the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70, as well as having given some facts and details regarding his coming return in the future. But the question of the day was still there on the table. The question that prompted this whole dialogue was the question of when? When are these things going to happen? To this, Jesus provides an answer, perhaps not exactly what they wanted, but it was the answer that they and we most need. So it is for us. The Lord may not give us the answer that we want, but He is giving the answer that we desperately In a sermon entitled, Learning from Fig and Flood, Jesus corrects our tendency to put spiritual things off until the last possible moment through two lessons. Two lessons. The first lesson is the lesson from agriculture, from the fig tree. The second lesson that we'll look at is a lesson from history, that of the flood. So first of all, let's consider together a lesson from agriculture the fig tree. Jesus commands here, outside of the text, now learn the parable from the fig tree. Verse 32. Learn the parable from the fig tree. 
He says here, learn a lesson from the fig tree. You see, there's consistency within the created world that God made, such that we can understand something about who God is and how he behaves by even looking at the world which he designed and created. There is a beautiful harmony in God's design of the world. The natural order, even though it's fallen and enslaved to corruption and awaiting for the glorious day in which all of us will be set right, even though fallen, the world around us reflects, still yet, God's goodness and God's wisdom and God's glory. Anyone who spent any amount of time in anything like a biological science at all has certainly, if if you're a Christian, been amazed at God's marvelous design, the incredible um, complexity that is throughout the entire world. For that matter, the entire universe is useful for learning lessons about living in God's world and learning about how God operates. Agriculture, from the world of agriculture, we don't have any things like fig trees only, but things like where the Bible tells us, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he'll also reap. If you plant corn, you get corn. You don't get apples out of corn, right? What I planted, I reap, and so it is with a man's actions. I can look at agriculture and learn a principle about my own actions and behaviors. The things that I sow, I will reap. If I spend time in rich, deep Bible study, there will be a reaping that happens from that. If I spend my time in rich, deep TV drama, there will be a a reaping from that as well, right? The choices that we make have consequences. There are so many passages throughout the Bible that call us to look to animals to learn. How about the famous one in Proverbs? Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. The ant, learn from the ant, you sluggard. You slothful, lazy man. Go and look at some ants for a while. Maybe he actually was maybe just staring at the ground. He could have just looked at the ant right there. Right? Look at the ant. Look at what the ant is doing in comparison with you. Passages like, don't muzzle the ox while he treads out the grain. A laborer is worthy of his wages. How about look at the birds of the air, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. They don't sow nor reap it nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than them? God provides for the birds, Jesus says. Look at the birds. You don't see them involved in big you know, barn building competitions, right? And yet your Father provides for them. How much more does He care for you? How about the stars? When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars that you've ordained, what is man that you've thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Have you ever looked up into a dark sky and seen all the stars and been just in awe of the grandeur of the bigness of the universe that God has created? Hear this homelessness. To think that you would think of me, you the great God who made all of this. I mean, God could have put the sun and moon in the in the sky, and that would have been enough, right? That would have been incredible. But then he not only put, you know, ten stars, or a hundred stars, or maybe a thousand stars, but, you know, I don't know the number, gazillions of stars, right? About the evening sky, and many of them that we can't even see. Because we're using higher and higher powered telescopes to even try to mind at the depth of it. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of His hand. All of the universe declares God's glory. Now, so Jesus' rebuke here comes to, to 
to men who are unable to see, to get the spiritual reality, but have no problem seeing physical ones. You mentioned this in Matthew 16. The Pharisees and Sadducees are testing Jesus, asking for a sign. And Jesus responds by saying, well, you guys look at the sky. And by looking at the sky, you guys are at least semi-proficient meteorologists, right? You're able to determine, well, that's good. Okay, we're going to grab a clear day today. And, oh, that's Because you're able to be weathermen with the sky, and yet you're not able to read and understand the signs of the times. You're not able to understand the spiritual realities that are staring you in the face, Jesus is saying. So he calls his listeners on this occasion to consider their response to the appearance of green shoots that come out of a fig tree, or any deciduous tree for that matter, Luke says, or any tree. But the point is, is that Fig trees were prominent in Palestine. It's quite possible right there on the Mount of Olives, Jesus is actually looking at a fig tree. It's about the time of year in which we're transitioning from winter into spring towards summer. And so it's quite possible Jesus is literally looking at a fig tree and says, What do you notice when you see a branch becoming tender and it starts to shoot out little sprouts? What's going to happen? You're able to look at a tree... And even if you have a couple of cold days that still you know, sneak up on you, you still know that summer is intending. It's coming. Just by looking at the tree, you, can, you know that. Jesus says there's a prelude to the finale. There'll be, just as you see signs of the seasons there, they're here by way of analogy. Jesus now turns a corner and he says in verse 33, So also you... When you might see all these things happening, know that it is near. It's at the gates. Truly I say to you that this generation will not pass away until all these things might happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus is starting to kind of wrap this thing together. We'll see in coming weeks that he tells several parables that really are all focusing back on this principle that he's presenting here in these few verses. But this wrap-up has become a place for further theological discussion and debate. There are a few questions that arise in a text like this. And in case you weren't already asking them, I'm going to help you ask them. Here's a couple of questions that certainly should come to our minds as we read that. First of all, what are the all things, all these things that Jesus is saying that he's referring to? All these things. Also, who or what is this generation that won't pass away until all these things happen? So who or what is this generation that he's referring to that will be present, will not pass away before all these things happen? And then, thirdly, what or who is near the gates? Some Bibles here translate, he is near at the gates, at the door. Others translate here, it is near at the door, at the gates. Luke describes in this very place, instead of saying it or he, has just there, uh, the kingdom of God is near. So, what is, which one do we, how do we translate this? Because the pronoun isn't provided. And it could either be a masculine or a neuter sort of pronoun. So is it it or he? So leave those three questions that we're confronted with here in this text. I want to do a quick survey of options because this text is one in which there has been much discussion and debate. And I at least want to lay out for you some of the various positions that have been, been uh, put forward. Now, obviously, we first of all have to start with skeptics of Scripture who point to this text as a moment of false prophecy in Jesus' ministry. 
this. He said, all these things are going to happen before this generation passes away. So there are certainly those who don't like the Lord, who would love to look at this part of the passage that's called Jesus the False Prophet. Saying that not all of the things that Jesus spoke about in the previous context have happened. So therefore, it didn't come true, and Jesus is a false prophet, therefore a false teacher, therefore not true things. So this is one of those texts where someone might want to bring you. But in response, there are several possible interpretations that uphold the veracity, the truthfulness of Jesus' words here. And I want to present a few of those and then hopefully present a perspective that I think is winsome. First of all, some believe that these words guarantee a preteristic reading. Now, what is a preterist? A preterist is someone who believes that all of the events that Jesus is talking about here were completely fulfilled in AD 70. But we already talked about this over the last several weeks. If you haven't been with us, I can't go into all that description again. You have to listen to the sermons online. But... But a preteristic reading means that all the events that Jesus described happened in AD by AD 70. And thus, if you believe that, when Jesus says all these things will happen before this generation passes away, they would take this generation to mean the contemporaries of Jesus living at that time, and everything happened AD 70, the Jerusalem is conquered, the temple is destroyed, not one stone left upon another, that's all a matter of history. And so all that happens for the preterist, he's like, no, this isn't false prophecy. Everything Jesus said happened AD 70 while that generation was still alive. Now, why doesn't everyone hold to that position? Well, the, the biggest issue is that there's part of what Jesus says involves events that seemingly have not happened yet. Probably the most notable one is Jesus coming on the clouds with great power and glory. Like that part. Like, the second coming of Jesus seems to be spoken of here by Jesus, and that hasn't happened yet. Now, in deference to preterists, they'll have some other explanation for what that is, either like Jesus' ascension or some other reason, but I personally don't agree with that. I think that Jesus is speaking to something in the future. He's talking about something in 87, but there's still yet something in the future he's talking to as well. So that's where the rub lays. Well, others will argue to deal deal with this, that this generation should be understood not as a reference to people being born within the same number of years. Like, you know, today we talk about the generation X or, you know, generation, the next generation, this sort of thing. And those kind of generations are done on like 20, 30 year, 40 year cycles, right? And we go, oh, this is all the people of this generation. That's one way we can understand generation. Well, there are others who argue that the word here, genea in Greek, could be a reference to descendants. In other words, everyone of a particular nationality or of a particular descent. It said that this word could be translated ones begotten in the sense of a people group and their descendants. Now, if that's the reading, people who have this reading argue that what Jesus is saying is that there will still be Jews alive when the end comes. So he uses this generation in a more general sense to say there'll still be Jewish people alive whenever the end comes. This would be the argument. Proponents of this reading are usually quick to point out that no matter what attempts have been made to exterminate and wipe out the Jewish people, they still exist against all odds. I mean, they have been picked on and beaten up and deported and, you know, attempts at exterminating them have happened throughout history. And, you know, here they still exist. Even in countries where they're scattered abroad, they still have distinctive Jewishness. And so a lot of people have made the argument that here we see a particular fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy that Israelites 
still exist even to the end of the age. Now, others who don't argue that way, who still want to take that word Ganea in the sense of a people rather than in the sense of a particular people born at a certain time, um, argue that maybe it's not a reference to Jews, but to Gentiles also who are the elect. So everyone who's a church, in other words, the church will still be in existence when the end comes. Well, let me just say this, that the biggest problem with the interpretation is holding that Ganea means that. It's not the typical meaning for the word. And so it's a little tricky to hold it to mean that way. The word generation kind of means like our typical generation. It refers to people living at the same time with one another. So it's a little, it's a little tricky to take it in a more general way that way. Not impossible, but not very straightforward. Another view that people hold is that this generation is a reference to the swiftness at which the end will come. In other words, Jesus is saying, when the end does come, it will happen so quickly that the generation that sees the beginning of the end will see the end of the end. Make sense? So, for those who are living at a time in which the tribulation, all of this great stuff that's happening, these huge, big, cataclysmic things are going on, that the time frame in which it will happen will be within the span of a generation. So, all of this generation, now, again, the one caveat with this is that this generation now is a reference to a generation still yet to come. I mean, for all we know, it could be our generation in this understanding, but certainly was not the generation that Jesus was referring to. So this interpretive schema, we see this generation as being a deferred generation, a generation still yet to come, or perhaps for us, we were still alive and Jesus hasn't come back yet, maybe our generation. Again, the biggest issue there is just this idea that there's a deferring of the time in which the generation starts. But that is an argument put forward by some. Now, while I don't want to press this dogmatically, I believe there's another option to consider. And I think the clue that we get to this is found in the contrast between Jesus' words in verse 34 and his words in verse 36, which I think ties very nicely together with the interpretive lens that I've been presenting and using through the previous sermons that we've had here in Jesus' all of so let's look at this again. Look at verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will I'm sorry, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. For there these things, tauta in Greek. All tauta things. All these things. By the way, the word things there is implied. So it's all these. Literally reads, until all these, panta tauta, all these. All these have come to pass. And then in verse 36, we see, But of that day, Achinas, that day, of the Achinas day and hour, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, we've already seen in this text that there seems to be some dual focus going on. There's a reference to events happening in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple, and this is being used typologically to refer to then coming events as well. Jesus is first saying something to his followers concerning the soon coming events, the destruction of the temple in AD 70. He explains that the timing of that destruction will be even within their own lifetime. So when Jesus says, all these things will happen, the these things he's referring to are not everything that he's just talked about, but the first part of what he talked about, those events that are in reference to the temple that comes to uh, destruction in AD 70. 
In other words, Jesus is saying, there will be people living that he's talking to right then that will see these things come to pass while they're still not yet all dead. Now, this is a very natural way to take this generation. He's referring literally to that generation, those people living right there and then. It's a very natural, very typical way to take that word. And we certainly prefer plain readings to more complex ones unless there's something in the text that would drive us to another persuasion. Jesus also says in the previous verse that when all these things can be seen, then know that it is near, at the gates. Now, when he's got that, that word translated at the door, it kind of sounds more metaphorical. But it's quite possible that Jesus is saying, at the gates. Now, the city of Jerusalem had gates, and those gates were besieged by the Romans. When the events that he talked about all come to, together, be sure of this. This would be my argument. That, G, that the Romans are about to conquer the city and they're about to come in and destroy the temple just as I have proclaimed it. In other words, this judgment is upon you. It's coming very, very soon. And it will happen within your own lifetime. Now what distinguishes then that perspective from that very first perspective I said with the preterists who said that everything happened in AD 70? Well, the distinction happens when we get to the next verse. Because I believe that secondly, Jesus is also, he's not only made proclamation regarding what's about to happen to that generation in AD 70, but he's also made statements about end time things, like him coming on the clouds, that sort of thing. And listen to how this reads, look at verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows. So he said, these things will happen, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Now, I want to further buttress this point. Go back to uh, Matthew 24. Look at verse 33. This is what started the whole discourse. What was the question that the disciples asked? Look at verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Now listen, tell us, when will... What's the word here? These things. When will these things happen? What's the these things that they're referring to? What Jesus just got done saying in the previous verses, the destruction of the temple. They asked, when will these things happen? And Jesus said, it's wrapping up his conclusion. And verse 34 says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I believe what Jesus is doing is he's answering the first question with verses 34 and 35 and 36. I'm sorry, 33, 34, 35. 33 through 35, he's answering the first question. When will these things take place? He says, within this generation. Well, there's still people here alive. This destruction on the temple is going to happen. But then what about like the stuff, if you go to verse 29, you know, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will give its light, will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the power of the heavens will be shaken, the sign of the Son of Man here in the sky will be coming on the clouds. What about all that stuff? Well, I think Jesus then answers that in the next verse, verse 36. But of that day, of that day and hour, no one knows. It appears that what was going on here, the disciples thought, if the temple is destroyed, then that must be the end of all of history. Like, everything's going to culminate right in one event. But I think what Jesus is doing throughout all of his discourse is saying, no, there's going to be both of these events. The temple will be destroyed. And my return, the coming of the Son of Man, is still yet to come. But there's a time in between the two. But how much time? No one knows. Except... The Father. 
You see, I think our handling of the text syncs up with his conclusion here. He's giving explanation regarding the timing of the temple's destruction. That was the things, things that they were asking. When will these things happen? These things being referenced in the temple being destroyed. He said that's going to happen within this generation. But of that day and hour, of my glorious and blessed return, which, by the way, was their second part of their question. Look at verse 24. I'm sorry, verse 3 of chapter 24. Tell us, when will all these things happen? And then, what will, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? I believe Jesus is answering both their questions. He says, the destruction of the temple, right here, within your generation. And it does, in AD 70, exactly as he said. And then meanwhile, of that day and hour, no one knows. No one knows. And even though it was unnecessary, Jesus even reiterates the surety of his own words for his disciples' own sake. He seals it with a further assurance by saying, My words will not pass away. It's the same kind of claim that Isaiah 40, verse 8 makes. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God shall stand forever. Endures forever. Heaven and earth will ultimately pass away, but Jesus' words won't. He says, you can bank on this. It is absolute surety what I'm telling you. Within this generation, this will happen. And yet, of that great and glorious day, the day of judgment and the day of redemption, final redemption, no one knows. Not even the angels or the Son of Man, but only the Father who is in heaven. Heaven and earth will ultimately pass away, but Jesus' words won't. Remember, everything that exists came into existence through Jesus. All that exists came into existence through Jesus. The heavens and the earth were established by the word of God. So which is primary and which comes before the other? The universe or God's word? You see, the universe came into existence by God's word. And so long after the heavens and earth have passed away, God's word will remain. Jesus can speak with this sort of authority regarding the future. Because remember, he's the author of history. He's written the script. It's all his story. The author of all of history can tell you how it's going to end, right? If I'm talking to Seth Woodley and he's written a book, and he's completed the book and I haven't read the whole book, I can ask him how it ends. He knows how it ends. He wrote it. The same it is with our sovereign God. He can speak with authority about the future, not just because he knows what the future holds, but because he's written He knew the end from the beginning. What's wonderful about this truth is that it not only gives us a strong warning to heed what Jesus says, right? If Jesus' words will stand, even if the earth and heavens are obliterated, if Jesus' words stand, then that should be strong warning that we listen to what he has to say. Absolutely. But more than that, it also gives us wonderful hope. Jesus will never let you down. He never breaks his word. All that he says will come to pass. And just as surely the day of judgment is coming is sure and true, so it is true and sure that all those who call upon his name will be saved. You can trust what Jesus says. Matthew Henry said it this way, We may build with more assurance on the word of Christ than we can on the pillars of heaven or the strong foundations of the earth. For when they shall be no more, the word of Christ will remain. God's time, which is the best time, and in God's way, which is the best way, it shall certainly be. James Boyce relays the anecdote uh, illustrating this reality. Maybe you've heard this story before.
before, but Voltaire, a famous French philosopher, predicted that within 50 years, no one would remember Jesus. Well, he was alive, he said within 50 years, no one's going to remember the name of Jesus. Yet, interestingly enough, in a pure irony, 50 years later, Voltaire is already dead, and his home was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society. And upon the very printing presses within Voltaire's house, they printed Bibles on the quantities of thousands a day. You see, men will come and go as a Voltaire did, and the words of men will come and go. But the word of Jesus endures forever. Now, Jesus says, of that day, here, I believe, a reference to the great climactic end of history. That day and hour, he says, no one knows. But this day and hour, a reference to the end of history, the culmination of God's work of judgment and redemption. Both judgment and redemption coming to a culmination at the end. Referred to in scripture as the great day of the Lord in other passages. Jesus says, no one knows this. You can't search it out with human wisdom. You can't predict the exact timing of this event. It's certain that it's coming. But the timing of its coming is unknown to us. So, cautionary, right? If anyone claims to know the day or hour, they're a liar. Do not believe anyone who says that they know the day and hour. Jesus has said no one knows it, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man. Only the Father. Now, this itself causes a question in our minds, doesn't it? Jesus is saying, he just got done saying, my words will stand. They'll they'll stand even when the earth and heavens are no more. But now he says there's something he doesn't know. He says, we won't know it. Then he says, the angels in heaven don't know it. Then he says, neither does the Son of Man know it. But only the Father knows. There have been some who have commented on this text that it might make a cultural connection with time, people of that time. Some argue that the betrothal customs of that time would typically only proceed once the father of the groom told his son, you can now go get your bride. It was at the betrothal, neither the groom nor the bride knew when the wedding date was. Not like today, you know, you engage, like, well, when's the wedding? You know, the first question you're asked, you're like, uh, we haven't decided yet. Um, it's like, oh, when's the wedding? We want to know the date. When is the date? When's the time? Tell me the time and date, right? We mark it on our calendars. Well, imagine a scenario where you're living in a culture where neither the bride nor the groom knows the date. The groom is there at his father's house, perhaps building an addition onto the house, getting ready for his soon-coming bride. If that's the case, he also makes sense of Jesus saying, I go away to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many rooms. It might be, again, a cultural connection to something they would have understood. Uh, the, the, the groom would be building a place for his soon-coming bride. And whenever the father said, now, son, go get your bride, that's when he went. And so trumpets would be blown, and off the groom goes to go and get his bride. Can you imagine, ladies, getting ready in a hurried case? You see here why Jesus, in just a few verses later, will talk about the prepared and unprepared virgins. But you see this connect, this cultural connection. Some people have said, and makes a cultural connection with that time. Because what Jesus says, neither the Son even knows when this day is coming. Remember, that's the, the great wedding feast, marriage feast of the Lamb when he's right in church. 
It's like a father saying, I'll, I'll tell you when it's time to go and get Dwight. He says, I don't know. Now, this still causes some problems for our finite human minds. How can there be something which God the Father knows that God the Son does not know when they're both holy and truly God? God the Son is fully and truly God just as God the Father is fully and truly God. How is it possible that God the Son cannot know something that the Father knows? Since God is omniscient, how can the Son, here's the question, how can the Son not know the exact time of His coming return? But here's where I give you the tremendous letdown. I'm woefully inadequate to answer that question. So now you have to follow the question, so why even bring it up? Why even talk about it then? Why talk to us about something you don't know if you have a clue about? Well, why does anyone ask a question that they're incapable of answering? Doesn't that just serve to discredit your position as a teacher? Maybe you sort of ask, what did you learn at seminary? What did they teach you over there anyway? Well, let me just first of all reply by saying every, every subject of study gets to some point at which you are not able to explain something. I don't care what the field of study is. In some senses, the more time you spend with a matter, the more you realize how much you don't know. You become quite proficient. You be, have a, develop a profound understanding of your ignorance. Right? I mean, usually that's what happens. Somebody who becomes an expert in a field, they become profoundly aware of how much they don't know. Before you lived in a blissful ignorance, like, oh, I think I know some stuff about that. Until you meet somebody who really knows stuff about that. And then you're like, oh, I don't know anything about that. And they're like, well, I don't know anything about this. Right? So there's a sense of that in any subject that we might study. The issue, though, gets pressed to the penultimate when discussing theology. Remember, here we're talking about and talking to God. And we use words in a feeble attempt to express the inexpressible. To describe the undescribable, to explain the unexplainable, to comprehend the incomprehensible. Right? That's what we're engaged in. Take any attribute of God, and yes, we can say much. We can write book upon book. We can fill libraries with books. We can write blogs that stretch from one end of the internet to the other. But ultimately, we recognize that God is so much bigger than our understanding, and He's so much bigger than our ability to communicate about His bigness, His greatness. We find ourselves using all descriptors, words with omnis in front of it, because we just can't get our hands around it. So, how powerful is God? He's all-powerful. What does that mean? Well, he, he, he's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He's not like us. He's not limited. He's not limited like we are. He's not limited by location either. He's omnipresent. He's always everywhere present. He's not limited by knowledge, so he's omniscient. He knows all things. He's not limited in any way, so he's infinite. The word infinite is just saying not finite. Right? What does it really mean to be infinite? Well, not finite, not like us. We're finite. How do you describe the infinite? How do you describe infinity? How do you, how do, you do that? Well, we do it by negating. We say it's not like us, not finite. I can't grasp how God could speak and bring the universe into being. How over six days he could bring into existence sun, moon, stars, and the earth and fit it with such beauty. 
God not, God not only made a functional, incredibly complex, well-working machine when he created the universe, but he fitted it with beauty. He gave it grandeur. He made so many different types of flowers and plants and trees. Why? He didn't have to. It could have been just tree. What? But it's billions of different types of these things. He made all these different kinds of fish and birds and land creatures. And then he made man, made in God's image, and each one of us unique and distinct from one another. God has been doing things that defy my mind since before I was even a thought in my parents' mind. He's been doing things that defy our understanding since before the foundation of the world. So it's good to get a healthy dose of humility as we delve into this for just a second. Because I, I have to offer something by way of explanation. How is it possible that Jesus can say that he's ignorant of the exact time of his return? I think it's best to see this fact as somehow connected with the incarnation. We refer to it as the kenosis. Um, what's described in Philippians as his emptying of himself in his taking on flesh and dwelling among us. Somehow this is connected to Jesus' first coming's mission and priority and teaching. In his earthly ministry, Jesus demonstrated his deity over and over. He showed he had unique teaching authority. He had miraculous power. He had the ability to forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone, right? Jesus is claiming to be God because he is. Interesting. Jesus shows his supernatural knowledge, too. He knows what's in men's hearts. He's able to talk to people about what they're thinking. There's several passages where it says, and they thought in their hearts, blah, blah, blah. And then Jesus responds to it vocally. He's having a dialogue with their thoughts. Jesus knows where, knows the whole life situation of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. He knows that the man that she's with right now, she's not really married to, and she's had several before that. He knows her life. Remember when Nathaniel is introduced to Jesus? Jesus says, I saw you sitting underneath the tree. And Nathaniel's like instantly ready, to like, oh, you're the son of God. And Jesus, that surprises you? Just wait. See what you're going to see. Jesus had supernatural knowledge. Yet, taking on flesh and growing as a man required some amount of temporary laying aside of the expression of some of his divine attributes and glory. Daniel Doriana says it well. Jesus is omnipresent, yet he traveled from place to place by foot, or by donkey, or by boat. When he walked, he laid aside his omnipresence. Jesus is omnipotent, yet unless he ate food, he became hungry. Without sleep, he became tired. He didn't draw upon his omnipotence to fill his empty stomach or to refresh his weary body. Jesus is omniscient, yet he laid aside some of his knowledge, too. You see, it's a product of his willingness to temporarily lay aside the free exercise of all of his divine attributes in the Incarnation that helps us to explain a statement like this. Had Jesus not accepted human limitations, the Incarnation would have been a charade. But he really did hunger. He really did thirst. In the temptation that he turned stones to bread up a... It would have been nothing if he didn't, if he's just feeding himself through his omnipotence, you know, I, I just supernaturally put food in my stomach, then, then it wouldn't be a temptation to turn stones to bread. 
Jesus really hungered. When he's on the cross, he said, I thirst. He really thirsted. He suffered. He felt pain. He really suffered. He really bled. And he really died. You see, the point is, Jesus admitting an ignorance in his incarnation does not detract from his being God any more than his taking on flesh and spatial categories detracts from his being God. When Jesus is walking around, how is he omnipresent at that moment? Did he cease to be God? No. You see, his willingness to take on human limitations in no way caused a cessation of him being God. This is all wrapped up in the miracle of the Incarnation, without which there would be no hope for salvation. The truth is that this ignorance is unsettling for for the same reason that the Incarnation is unsettling. Right? The entire thing is unsettling. How can God become man? That's unsettling. How can the infinite, in any sense, become finite? How could he who owns the cattle on a thousand hills be laid in the meeting place? How could he who holds the whole world in his hand be held in the arms of Mary and Joseph? How could he who is completely independent come to earth and place him in such dependence upon earthly parents? How could he who is perfect in every way, grow in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man? How is that possible? How could he whom the highest heavens cannot contain be spatially located? And then for us who know the rest of the story, how could he who created trees be hung upon one and crucified? And why would he who gives breath to every living thing endure the rebukes and insults and revilement of wicked men? He who is the Lord of the universe, who owns legions of heavenly hosts, armies at his command, why does he hold them back when he's crucified? He who has life in himself lays down his life, he gives up his spirit, and he dies. How does he die? See, here is the miracle of the incarnation. God the Son takes on flesh and dwells among us. Jesus, who is fully God, becomes fully man. He in no way ceases to be God in becoming man. For what was required for our salvation was one who could both represent us before God and God to us. For on the cross, he must die as a man in the place of men. But in order for his death to be satisfactory and to be able to take away our sins, he must also be God. In a sense, God absorbing the wrath of God on behalf of man. But in order to take the wrath of God, he must be man. Thus, he must be God-man. He must be fully God and fully man. In order for us to be saved. And the truly good news is that the grave couldn't hold him. Jesus rose on the third day. He appeared to many. His resurrected body ascended to heaven. He's now seated at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for his children and awaiting the day of his return. And so while I must admit that I don't understand how this is all possible, therefore I must admit my creatureliness, I must also declare my great thanks and gratitude that it happened. For without it, there would be no salvation for me, and there would be none for you either. It becomes even the, not only the basis for our salvation, but the basis for Christian living. Philippians 2 says, it's this very thing, this, this very thing, this attitude, this mindset that's in Christ Jesus, he emptied himself, humbled himself, all this. Take this on to yourselves. Next time you have trouble with humility, think about Jesus. What did he do? 
us, it's just, as Calvin said, accepting our rightful place. Jesus actually emptied himself of what was rightfully his. So quickly, we move from agriculture to history. And Jesus here in verses 37 through 41 gives us a lesson from history. The flood. Just a quick side note. Notice that Jesus believes the historicity of the flood. Note that. The flood is not some fictitious tale that we can cut from the Bible and remain okay. Jesus talks about Noah and he talks about what happened. And the basis of his instruction is based upon what happened with Noah and the flood. It wasn't some little localized flood. It was a worldwide cataclysmic event. By the word, the word there, flood translated, is the word in Greek, cataclysma. It's a cataclysm. It was a completely worldwide phenomenon. Jesus, just as he tells us to learn from agriculture, learn from the victory, he tells us also to learn from history. Right? Look to the flood. What happened back then, he's telling us to do. You know, in 2 Peter 2.5, Noah's called the preacher of righteousness. And certainly people had sufficient time to make up their mind about what they wanted to do. 120 years it took them to build the ark. 120 years. You're not only hearing Noah, the preacher of righteousness, but you're seeing him build a massive boat. They were deaf to verbal warnings and they were blind to what they saw visually. And they rejected it. People continued living life as always. Eating and drinking, we're told. Marrying and giving in marriage. I must freely admit, there's nothing wrong with eating or drinking. There's nothing wrong with getting married or giving one's child in marriage. All of these things are acceptable things. They're all good things. All blessings and things to be enjoyed from the Lord. The problem is when those things become everything. When you pursue those things for them themselves, there's a problem. When they're enjoyed to the glory of God, they're wonderful. When they're enjoyed to their own glory, we've got a big problem. And this is what's going on. These people weren't reverencing God. Instead of eating, they should have been repenting. They should have been concentrated on the need of the hour, but they weren't. They were caught up in the events of the day. And you see where Jesus is going with this. He says, until the day in which Noah entered the ark... And then the cataclysmos, right? When this cataclysm hit, then they knew just how true it was. But it wasn't until it hit. And in that moment, they realized the authenticity of these events, and it just came too late for them. Judgment had been forecast, had been proclaimed. Still, it came as a surprise to them. They shouldn't have been surprised, yet it came as a surprise. This is so much the situation today. Jesus says it will be just like that. People will be so caught up and wrapped up in little picky uni things of their own day-to-day life. Some will be completely indulgent in sinful things. But other people will just be completely going about their, their day with no thought at all about the future. No thought at all about a coming judgment. Some will even deny that there's going to be a coming judgment. And they'll live, they'll eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. They don't even care about what's to happen. Some people believe that the, the delay at which this is taken, that must, he must not be coming back. It must not be real at all. And Second Peter 3 speaks to that reality. We had that read this morning. The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, while it's still called a day, today, it's a day in which you can repent and believe in Christ. Yet, there are a lot of people who are slumbering. There are a lot of people thinking, that it's never going to come. 
Jesus says behavior will be similar in the last day as the days leading up to the flood. We can expect indulgence and sensuality in the days preceding the end. People will do what feels good. They'll live only for the moment. They'll reject the thought or notion of a coming judgment until the day Jesus returns. And then it will be very, very plain and clear. We're told here, Jesus finishes by saying, there will be two men in the field, one taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. We can debate as to whether or not the one taken or the one left is the one that's judged. (laughs) There's been lots of discussion about that. Either way, this is what we know for sure. There's a separation that happens. It's like what Jesus said, there'll be a separation of the wheat and the tares. And there's only two groups. There'll be those left and those taken. There's no third division. There's no purgatory. There's no limbo. One or the other. You are either in Christ or you are not. You're either a sheep or a goat. You're either chaff or wheat. You're either in Jesus or you're not. It doesn't matter what your gender is, male or female. No matter whether you're working in a field or a mill, wherever you are. It doesn't matter what you're doing, plowing or grinding. It doesn't matter who you're with or where they're headed. If you're not in Christ, judgment is coming for you. And no matter what your gender, male or female, no matter where you are, field or mill, no matter what you're doing, plowing or grinding, no matter who you're with and where they're headed, if you're in Christ, then you'll receive mercy and grace and eternal life. See, it's not enough to be like, well, I'm by somebody who's a Christian. There'll be a separation. If you're not in Christ, there'll be judgment for you and mercy and forgiveness and salvation for them. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what your gender is. It doesn't matter where you are or who you're with. The crucial question is, are you in Christ? Have you repented of your sins? Have you trusted in Him alone? Because that great day will mean great change for both groups. Do you realize that for Christians, this is the closest we'll ever get to hell? This is the closest we'll ever get to hell. What we're experiencing right now, the tribulations, the trials, all of that is just for us mounting up, building up an eternal weight of glory, far beyond our comprehension. All the bad stuff that happens to Christians now is going to be rewarded gazillion fold in heaven, right? All of this, there'll be no longer any death or mourning or crying or pain. Every tear will be wiped from our eyes. Nothing here is worthy to be compared with the glory to come. And yet, for those who are not Christians, this is the closest you'll ever get to heaven. This is the best you'll ever get. No matter what you've been through, no matter how hard it's been, that's the closest you'll ever get to heaven. Because what's to come is an eternal judgment, a penalty of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. These will be thrown into hell, also referred to as the lake of fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some places it's called darkness. Other places it's called fire can you imagine completely pitch black intense fiery heat you see this earth will be the closest thing that any non-christian gets to to heaven it'll be the closest thing that any christian ever experiences to hell you see the way that jesus answers this initial question from the disciples ultimately is really By implication, he's asking them a question, and he's asking us one too. The question that was posed is, when will this happen? When will the end come? 
And Jesus rebuffs this with an implied question. And this is the question that he's asking them and he's asking us. Whenever it does come, will you be ready? Whenever it does come, will you be ready? And the only way you can be sure that you'll be ready, since you don't know the hour or the day, is to make sure you're ready right now. This could be your last moment to prepare. Are you ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your marvelous word. The tremendous instruction that it provides us. I must admit that there are a great many matters that go beyond my comprehension, beyond my understanding. And yet, a great number of those very things that I don't understand, I am so grateful for. Certainly among those is, why would you send your son Jesus to die in the place of sinners? And we know we have answers like, well, for your glory you did this, and that's a true answer. But we also know that you're arrayed in glory throughout all of eternity. Lord, thank you that you have this marvelous plan that you are enacting and bringing to pass. Thank you that we can trust that. Thank you that, Jesus, your words are sure and steadfast. Even should the earth and heaven pass away, your words remain. So I pray that these words would be lodged into our hearts and minds today. Pray that if there are any here who are lost and have put off a decision regarding you, that you wouldn't allow them to feel content or settled, that they would be tremendously unsettled, so that they would cry out to a Savior they would cry out to the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. They would believe His death is the means by which they can have their sins forgiven, and His resurrection is the means by which they can have eternal